Hi, everyone. How many of you guys remember your first day at any job? Nine years ago, November of 2008, I remember my first day at my first job. I did not do anything, any work on that day. Instead, I spent my time checking out video games at my new office. I spent time looking at food menus at the cafe. And you know, I also spent time drinking tea or coffee. That day, I also spent my time making four trips to the IT support office because my laptop was in a reboot loop. And being a network engineer, I couldn't do anything, you know, any kind of work um, without my laptop. So the IT support technician, he spent a full day figuring out what the problem is, and he found that a bad RAM was to blame. Hello, everyone, and welcome to user self-service portal for workspaces session. I'm a product manager for Amazon Workspaces. My name is Hassan. And today, we will talk about how to build and implement user self-service portals. I'm very delighted and honored to, for having this opportunity to speak in front of some of the IT experts uh, in the industry. Joining me today on the stage are Brian, uh, who's Senior Director uh, for Pfizer. I have Yvonne, who's uh, Senior Manager for Pfizer as well. And we have John, um, who's also from Pfizer. So in today's session, we will cover the pain associated with manual and time-consuming IT operation and processes. We'll also talk about how workspaces eases all of that pain so that you as an IT admin have faster process as well as your end user gets everything consistently every time. We will then dive into designing an IT um, self-service portal using Workspaces API. And then we will also um, talk about how can we um, use different API features that are available in the Workspaces API and connect that to your existing uh, IT uh, infrastructure and IT systems. We have a couple of new features coming up um, in December, and we'll uh, touch a little bit upon those. And then we will talk about how Pfizer uh, used uh, leveraged automation from Workspaces API to build their own IT support system. And finally, we'll have some time for questions. So frequently when we talk to IT admins, they find themselves buried in the repetitive processing of managing help desk tickets, provisioning new hardware, reclaiming the existing IT hardware when an employee leaves the company, re-imaging and repairing. Or in some cases, if you have a virtualized environment, provisioning all these workspaces or any virtualized desktop uh, for their office workers and developers. So the most of the day that they spend are on tasks that are just completing a workflow and not necessarily adding any value to their work. And think about it. Do you guys ever think about how much time can be saved by leveraging automation, 
how much time can be saved uh, from the end user perspective um, by provisioning them workspaces or any other VDI faster, and give them a, an experience that is consistent every time. It delivers every time uh, on the time, so they have expectations from you um, that are well met, and uh, you, know, you can actually remove that friction of onboarding new uh, employees, um, old employees leaving the company, and so on and so forth. The bottom line is that the traditional IT processes and hardware uh, provisioning um, systems are very time-consuming and laborious. And these sluggish processes definitely end up in increasing cost for your organization. So how Workspaces helps easing that IT management? Workspaces provides you a very simple management console where you can do actions such as creating workspaces, provisioning new workspaces, repairing any un unhealthy workspaces, um, and in case of if you have any maintenance tasks to do. Um, and similarly, if you want to release or reclaim the IT hardware, in this case workspaces, just uh, you can terminate it. And think about it that a new IT or new employee comes to uh, your company, joins it, you can quickly, within a few minutes, provision a workspace with a few clicks. And what ends up happening is that your organization becomes more agile. It's more fast. You can uh, leverage all of uh, you, you know, the uh, cloud-based management console. And with a few clicks, you are able to remove a lot of that friction and time that we just talked about earlier. So, Let's go a little bit further. We have a management console that you can use. You can, uh, of course, go into that, you know, provision new workspaces as we talked about. But let's go a little bit further. This time-consuming processes that we're talking about and this whole friction that we just touched on, it's really affecting both the end user and the IT admin. According to a recent survey, 61% of the end users reported that they submit one or more ticket to IT each month for device maintenance and repairs. 46% of the, um, you know, the people who responded submit two or more. Now looking at the end user perspective, uh, or sorry, the IT respondent perspective, 32% of them spent quarter or more of their time engaging in device maintenance and repair. So to put things into perspective from your organizational uh, point of view, what that means is that an organization of about 1,000 employees will spend about, uh, will get about 1,700 tickets a month. And if you multiply that by 12, you have uh, 21,000 tickets per year. So let's put a very underestimated time for resolving each of these tickets. If we say that one hour per ticket, that's, that's 21,000 hours in a year that are being spent um, on these tasks. So today, we are going to remove this 21,000 and reclaim that time back for our IT admin and remove that uh, time from end user perspective. So let's walk through the journey of a new employee that joins your organization. The first thing that happens 
uh, today you have a new employee that um, came to your organization, the first thing you're going to do is give them an IT hardware, whether it's workspace, PC, what, whatever. Um, in case of workspaces, uh, of course, you have the speed and agility of doing that through the workspaces console. Similarly, you know, a week happened, 20 days went by, you know, they put some software on it or something happened and they made their workspaces impaired or unhealthy. You can quickly go and repair it um, or in the form of rebuild functionality. Then, you know, uh, whatever time frame happened and the employee decides to leave the company. So in, in the old case, you'll have to take back that laptop, you know, um, re-image re it and do all of that heavy lifting work and then give that to a new employee or maybe recycle it. Um, three years go by, you have to recycle all the laptops. Um, in, in the case of workspaces, you can just delete it. It's terminated, gone. And finally, um, we will talk about a, a couple of features that, uh, in which you can add more resources to their existing workspaces. Because in a lot of organizations, the demand or a user's demand for hardware is ever-changing. If they need today an 8 gigabyte RAM, uh, tomorrow they might need 16. So all of this thing that we talked about, we can get rid of it, reduce the time, you know, make your organization fast and agile. So let's dive into how we're going to do that today. So Workspaces has, of course, uh, there, there's a lot of operations, but Let's take the example of simple four operations. We need to create a workspace. We need to terminate a workspace uh, when the employee leaves. We need to rebuild a workspace if there's an uh, unhealthy workspace. And then, of course, there's reboot. You always, you know, reboot is a very simple operation that is frequently required by the user. So put this into uh, a user and an approval uh, or a manager approval model. You want to empower your user to do all these operations, but of course you have to have some sort of approval model, some sort of control um, that will let them um, do these operations uh, based on your organization's policy or based on uh, whatever security model you have implemented. So here on the screen you can see that there's the rebuild and reboot operation, which is um, mostly an end user functionality. And that's what we are talking about here. That a reboot is, of course, very easy in, the, um, you know, in, in both worlds. But um, a rebuild, repairing of a machine, providing that capability to the end user, is extremely important. It takes away so much time um, from all those operations that we talked about. Similarly, we're talking about provisioning um, and decommissioning um, in terms of reclaiming the IT hardware and providing new IT hardware. Finally, these are the two things that I talked about earlier. We are uh, going to be releasing two more features uh, in the upcoming months um, in which you can actually switch workspaces, compute power from uh, you know, value to standard to performance to power. And for those of you um, who want to know more, uh, we have these bundles uh, with different hardware resources in it, uh, which are called value, um, standard, performance, and power. And then the second feature that we will be launching is the ability to configure your storage. So you can increase your storage of the volume sizes uh, that are available in, the, um, in workspaces. 
So if you draw a comparison to the old work, if you need to increase a hard disk size, you really have to remove the hard disk, put a new one in, copy the data, re-image it. So uh, all of that takes, what, three, four hours. Um, in case of workspaces, you can just do that in five minutes, 10 minutes, right? So if you think about the journey of, uh, or rather the flow of uh, the user getting onboarded, they are coming in, they want to do these operations, you have a manager um, or a policy template that you can use to allow that user to rather um, reboot and rebuild their own workspace or give the admin the functionality to do that for everyone in your organization and so on. So let's go even further deep into this. We have a user, okay? This user comes uh, uh, into your organization. And in, in this uh, flow, uh, we will be using our provisioning example where we are talking about um, a, uh, an end user joining your organization, first day at work, uh, want to um, get an IT equipment just to, so that they can start working. So this user comes into your um, organization. The first thing that you need to uh, do, um, and again, we are talking about self-service portals, so they can go into a portal, um, and what, with the aim that they want to get this new uh, workspaces. So this user, what they're gonna do is that they're going to, as soon as they request a workspace, it's going to go to an API gateway. Now all of this architecture diagram that I'm talking about, we are going to see a demo of it in, in actual action. Um, and the actual action is basically that you have a web page, a user, a new user comes in, they um, request a workspace based on uh, whatever the, the specifications they require. And then a workspace is set up for them. So they get the email, they get uh, all the registration, uh, all that uh, provisioning um, workflow that they need. So how, we have, how we're gonna set it up is that we have a user um, who requests um, from this web page, which that web page is going to be placed in the S3 bucket, for example. Then we have um, API Gateway. Uh, what that API Gateway is doing is that it's uh, talking to that Lambda function and collecting all the information from the API, from Workspaces API on what bundles are available, whether it's a standard, um, it's with standard with Office, it's performance, performance with Office, Windows 7, 10, and so on. So, you know, they click the button, they want a new workspace. Okay, now we go into approval process that, okay, they, they have requested this, now let's go um, talk about how uh, the approval process works and how we will um, allow or not, or reject uh, the request. So we go into the approval process, we have the Lambda function again there, and what that Lambda function is doing is that it's calling the, simple, uh, the SES, the email service, and that email service essentially is going to send an email out to uh, the IT admin or whoever um, is managing those provisioning or those resources for your organization. We take that email, that email goes to that manager, and I have a nice Star Trek uh, logo there for the manager, and uh, um, that manager is basically just giving the permission to approve or disapprove this request that the, customer, that the end user has made. 
you can see that there's a S3 and Lambda and database uh, uh, kind of resources sitting there. And what they're doing is that they are collecting all this um, user information and what kind of bundles they're they are getting. So they're keeping a track uh, in DynamoDB or any database that you want to use of all the users that have asked for a workspace and who are getting that workspace. Um, so essentially keeping track of uh, all the actions that have taken place in this workflow. So we go into the next flow, whether it's, it's approved or rejected request. So we have a succeed or a fail. And how that ties back into the other picture that we talked about. So on the top, you can see that the activity task from the previous function. So uh, to put it into perspective, if the customer, if the end user asked for a standard workspace with Windows 7, for example, that get activity task is basically keeping track of that call because that's the call that is going to go to the workspaces API to actually provision that workspace. The step function there is basically waiting for that approval to come through. And as soon as that approval comes through, or in some cases if the rejection comes through, so uh, it's, it's really waiting to execute that uh, activity task. In case of rejection, very easy. It's going to fail. Go to the Lambda function. You can, um, um, again, create an SES email that sends back to your user that you know, reject, um, uh, request rejected or do any sorts of action that you want to do in, in, from your organization's perspective. And if it succeeds, it goes to another Lambda function, uh, which will then call our API, taking that activity task that we talked about in the beginning, and really just ask for provisioning that workspace based on that. So all of this process that we talked about takes about seven, eight minutes. So to put things into perspective, um, in the past, you have you know, provisioning that laptop. You have to image it. You have to do all sorts of things to prepare that machine for your end user. And in this case, all of that uh, process is done. And if you notice, your IT admin was only involved for that approval button. And if you want, you can also automate that, put a policy template on it um, that every new employee gets you know, workspace standard. And with the new features that we talked about, there's very low risk involved in it. You, you can configure that every new user that comes to your organization gets a standard workspace. And then someone can come and say, hey, I need more power. I need more RAM or more CPU. And then you can easily use the upcoming features to move them from standard to performance or from performance to power um, or, or do any sorts of those changes. So we talked about the architecture. Now, I want to show you how easy it is to call a Workspaces API to do all this work. The, the all, the, all the architecture you, you saw, you can actually build a CloudFormation template. And I'll briefly show you what that template looks like. And that template can be sitting in your AWS account. And all you have to do in front of that um, template, this Lambda function that we talked about on the right top is basically where you have to run this code. And it's a very simple JSON file that you can use using AWS CLI command and really just provision a workspace. As you can see, it's a single line of code 
and on the bottom you can see the input that goes into that JSON file. So that was one example of the code. But if you want to integrate that into your existing IT systems, so you have an existing um, you know, in-house or third-party uh, tools that have the capability uh, to use any of these options, you can call uh, the Workspaces API to do all those actions that we talked about in the beginning, um, you know, including provisioning, rebuild, um, termination, and so on. Uh, and you can see that uh, the AWS, we use the AWS SDK, it's standardized uh, for uh, .NET, C++, um, and a lot of other uh, different uh, languages. So let's go into the demo. Uh, we saw uh, this architecture um, built. Uh, so let's see how it looks like in reality. All right. So this is a very simple uh, demo that um, Kevin and Vicky, uh, who are two uh, solution architects in um, our Sydney ProServe team, they came up with this demo really quickly. Um, and it's very, very simple. So this is the kind of page that I'm talking about. This is the page that we uh, talked is present in the S3 bucket that um, the user came and uh, started a workspace with. So I'm just going to use couple of emails, and this is where we talked about in the beginning that there's an API um, gateway that we are using. So all of these bundles are basically being populated by that API gateway uh, who's constantly checking from the workspaces API what sorts of bundles are available. Um, and keep in mind, if you have custom bundles, they are going to show up here. So if your uh, own organization have custom bundles, they can also show up here. So let's say I select standard with Windows 7, okay? Submitted a request. And it will go soon. All right, there it is. So we don't have a UI here. <laughs> it's just a simple uh, text message. And while we're waiting for the email, I want to quickly show you that there's a reboot functionality here. So you can, you can really give your end user the capability to only reboot their own machine. You can restrict them um, to only reboot uh, their own specific machine. Then we also have the rebuild functionality here, in which case you just want your user to be able to rebuild their own machine. And then the decommissioning piece, um, it's unlikely you want to give that uh, power to the end user, but if you want to, you can do that as well. And uh, so here's our email that just came in from my request. And you can see that you can add any email text here, whatnot. You can see that this is the bundle ID that I used to um, request our workspace. You can see that I have two options. I can approve or reject this request. Rejection is easy. It's going to stop um, the full workflow. Let's approve it. So it says, you know, your response have been accepted. Okay. So now, I will go into my Workspaces console that I've already seen. I will see in, a, in about um, you know, 30 seconds or so, we will be able to see here that the provisioning of that Workspace has started. So it takes 30 to 40 seconds. Um, 
But the key point here is you have uh, on one side a lot of bundles that you want to uh, build from your custom images, for example. You can do that and put this. Sorry, I apologize. Oh, there you go. So you can see that my workspace is now being provisioned for me. And um, it has all the settings that I have uh, put in at the time of uh, requesting that workspace. And we just took an example of provisioning flow. But if you want to see that there's, there's so many different actions that you can do here that are basically uh, calling Workspaces API. Uh, so it's a full uh, suite of all the functionality that you want to manage your um, workspaces. All right. And with that, I would hand over uh, the stage to Brian, who's going to talk about his implementation. Thank you, Hassan. Hi. Um, my name is uh, Brian Forrestal. I work for Pfizer. Um, my role was to be the executive sponsor for implementing Amazon Workplaces in Pfizer. Um, we've been working with Amazon in partnership together um, for the last two years. Uh, we've been working with Amazon and we've been implementing uh, workspaces in the environment. Um, as I said, we've been doing it for about two years now. So we're pretty mature in terms of you know, the process, the use of it in the environment. But when we started this journey with Amazon, we had some key principles because we didn't just want to swap a technology because you use a huge opportunity here. We wanted to treat it as a proper end-to-end -end service. So that meant looking at the process from the provisioning of the desktop all the way through to its decommissioning and turning it off and archiving the data. So that's, we want, and we wanted to keep it as simple as possible, and we wanted to drive end user uh, self-service. And that was, there were some key things that we wanted to do. So we, we, we weren't looking at this as just a technology swap. We were looking at this fundamentally. How do we change the operating environment? How do we move away from being um, shackled to the hardware? Okay. And there was just some, so behind all of that is a cost element as well. Um, so we were one of the first people to come up on Windows 10 on EC2. Um, and we've been partnering with the Amazon team, as I said, for the last two years. So when we started working with Amazon on some of the technical things that we needed to do together, um, there were some key themes that came out was that if you really want to get the best out of this environment, you have to take a step back and look at your processes. And you have to automate as much as possible. And that meant that very quickly, you know, working with Amazon, we realized that you really do need to put in a self-service portal. And not have that portal just in-house, but externally hosted as well, so it's visible on the outside as well. So we've been running, as an example, um, application support from India for the last two years using the um, Amazon workspaces. Uh, our desktop support calls to the service desk went down by 75% when we moved over to Amazon's workspaces. So there were some fundamental you know, processes that we looked at. We looked at you know, access to a standard Pfizer desktop. So 
we run a qualified image in a regulatory environment, so it's a completely locked down desktop. Um, we looked at the whole IT integration and onboarding. We wanted to automate that as much as possible, so when the request comes in, it's completely automated from the time the email goes out to um, the VM being provisioned to the user engaging with it. The whole process is completely automated from end to end, even down to every month we scavenge the environment and anybody who hasn't been using their VM, we park that VM and we actually don't pay Amazon for that when we park it. And then we can leave it there and we can turn it back up or we can turn it off and we can archive the data. So that's the way where we're looking at it. Um, also, uh, rapid provisioning, like um, Pfizer does a lot of you know, uh, acquisition collaborations and divestitures. Um, by using this, you know, you imagine we have um, 90,000 people, about 40,000 contractors that do third party work for Pfizer from manufacturing to research and development to whatever. And being able to turn around and work with a company from day one and say, you know, in 40, 50 minutes, you have access to Pfizer systems. Once you have an Active Directory account and you're set up in our system, we can provision a VM for you and get you access onto our systems once your manager approves the request. That's how quick we can do it. So imagine before how long it took for us when we're dealing with companies, you know, to, to do something like that. So it's gone from weeks and months to a matter of hours. Um, the other piece too is on-demand support. Um, you, you can't just turn this thing on and just hand it over to the end users. You need to really think about you know, the impact on them. Um, one of the things that we were really, really conscious about when we started this off was that we had, as you can imagine, you know, managing 140,000 you know, laptops you know, PCs um, across 450 different locations, um, it gets pretty complex, right? Um, but it was a one sort of type heavy touch service model. Using this, what we've done now is created business use cases and we actually tier the support for the business use cases. So an, an example of a business use case would be the acquisition and divestors one. Another business use case would be certain types of contracting staff that need access to certain systems. So we've actually mapped them out, and we'll talk about it later on, about this concept of community leads, where they actually are the super users of that business group, and they're involved in the support process as well, and have access to the tools and the admins that can take away a lot of noise away from the service desk, which is really important when you're dealing with third party vendors as well, because um, you need to work with those. And the other piece that we've done is that, and we actually stopped the rollout until we actually got this in place, is um, we put in an automated process to take an end user from having a physical laptop or a desktop and actually automating the process and guiding them through to actually the provision of their VM and it takes them completely through the process and shows them exactly where they are in the process, what the next step is and what they have to do, where they should put their data, where they should store their files, what they should do with their PSTs, all of those types of things. So 
Um, you know, one of the quotes from uh, Bernard Dawn, who's the senior director in um, Pfizer, that's responsible for the whole client environment, like, you know, and we can see the, the quote that Bernard put up there, but this really, really promotes self-service, and that's uh, uh, fundamental. Okay, so IT onboard integration, um, as I said, when a person gets an email, um, it goes to their manager. And for certain business use groups, we actually don't give them a choice. We say a virtual machine is what goes to that business use group. Because it picks it up from their profile, what business unit they're in. It also picks up their costs, and where those costs are going to go, and who pays for it. So we're able to decide whether, you know, what region it will run in. So we, we run, you know, um, in North America, we run in Europe and in Asia Pack. So we're running VMs in, in all regions, okay? Um, obviously, we spoke about the rapid provisioning and the on-demand support and pay-by-use. We have the ability to be able to uh, pay by the day. There's also the ability, we haven't implemented it yet, but you can actually run a program in the background that actually looks at the usage. And if you're on a monthly pay model, it'll actually automatically move you to a, a pay model by day. So if you have contractors that are not working or you know, they've, you know, they came in for a week and then they came back four weeks later or they came back six months later, you, know, you can imagine you know, the capabilities that it gives you in that type of environment because you're not paying for the VM the whole time because it's parked. Um, we put this slide together actually to talk to some of our business user communities and, as, and it was one of the things that we spoke about was, let's start with security. So they said we have a fully qualified desktop environment and we run an EC2 and we actually, you know, it's fully locked down um, in terms of security and we run on dedicated hardware. Um, we also run a model with Amazon where we bring our own license. So we're paying for the, the compute utility. So we have our own master services agreement with Microsoft. So we're not paying, you know, Amazon for Microsoft for the agreement. We already have the licenses. So it's a bring your own license support model. And from a security perspective, as I said, for us it solves an awful lot of problems because, you know, we we actually tell people where they should store their documents. Um, they're not carrying around a machine that we have to worry about, that we have to get back. Um, the other piece too is that when the people are using workspaces, if we have to run a legal hold or we have to run any forensics on, on the environment, that can be done by our security teams now. They don't need to go and try and get a physical device. They absolutely love this because they can just do it automatically in the background and really solves an awful lot of problems for them. Um, the utility model piece, as I said, that we just spoke about that, we can flip between monthly to daily or whatever model you want, or say this business, business use segment, they pay for it or it goes into the central IT budget. You can decide what you want to do. So it becomes a much easier conversation with the business then around what the options are. You know? um, and there is certain types of situations where people do need to have a physical machine. Like, you know, if you have a chromatography skill and you have a machine, a PC on that, you're not going to be able to turn that in on a VM because, you know, it's going to be doing acquisition, data acquisition locally in the manufacturing site. But 
you know, a lot, a lot of users can you definitely use VM, and it is um, the cost. We were running an environment for our third-party contractors, and all I can say was the cost versus what we have now is, you know, night and day. It's a, there's no comparison. Um, it's, but you need to take the opportunity, though, to restructure your business processes to fit this type of model. Um, otherwise, you won't get the cost benefit of it. Um, you will get cost benefit, but you won't maximize it. But uh, the cost savings are significant. Um, and obviously, speed. And, and that, that's key for us. Business agility is really, really key these days. Um, and being able to react to what's going on um, to, in the environment. Um, availability, as I said, is available 24-7. Um, and you've seen some of, from Amazon's own presentations over the last week in terms of, you know, we're actually using it in some cases for DR. Um, we're also running um, um, bots on VMs as well and doing um, scanning on financial stuff. So we're actually using it in quite a diverse um, um, areas. And then um, on the support side then, as I said, it's really, really optimized for self-service. Um, and we'll go into a little bit more. But it's a tiered support model. So it's not like, it's not like we had, like if we had um, people coming in that, you know, they, they can use a Mac now, they can use an Android device. Um, yeah, Bernard down here was using his um, Samsung phone connected to a dock running, you know, the virtual machine on it, on, connected to, to, uh, to a screen, and he was running, you know, the desktop environment on that. So it's, it's, it's quite amazing in terms of how we can use it. And actually, when we moved over, the, the speed that you can get, I was using... Um, I was actually using an iPad Pro today in the session, and I was running Amazon VM on it and running workspaces on it. So we had a situation with the Salesforce where you had a Salesforce person because all the ED is on iPads, and then you had to have a physical machine, a laptop, to do email and administrative work. Now we can move to one device where we have everything on one device. Okay. And then we'll hand it over to Yvonne. Thank you very much. Hey, folks. Uh, my name's Yvonne Griffin, and I'm the uh, Pfizer Virtual Desktop On Demand Program Lead. Um, just to pick up on some of the points that Brian has raised, we fully optimized this service for um, self-service for the users. Um, we've spoken in the earlier slides about the fact that this is for um, one of our use cases is the contractor population. Um, when we're in this model, we're going from a situation where the users have had a physical device, it's been heavy touch, it's been costly. Um, we're now moving towards you know, uh, contractors using virtual desktops. Um, it's lighter touch, therefore it has to have self-service portals, we have to have the right information available to them so that they can help themselves and really empower them. We don't want them to feel that we're taking something away because we're taking away a physical device. We don't want them to additionally feel we're taking away support routes from them. We want them to understand that they have really good tools available and really good options to get support. So we've laid out some really clear support routes for them to go when they need help. So you're a virtual desktop user. You have an issue with your virtual desktop. The first place that we ask you to go is to our virtual desktop portal. Now this is for you as a user. 
um, you can log in here, sorry, not log in, you can just, it's a website, you can connect to it. To Brian's point earlier, it's available internally and externally. Um, you can check the status of your virtual desktop here. Um, it will show you the health of that instance. And if you feel a restart or a reboot is needed, you can go and do it there and then. Um, we find in a lot of instances, this resolves any issues that they may be seeing. Um, but in addition, there's other support routes they can take. And you know, the next one here, the uh, go to Pfizer's IT portal. This is actually available to all Pfizer users. Um, it's really the place where they go to look at KBAs, look at FAQs, um, but they can also go here to download software onto their virtual desktop. Um, you know, and that's the regular software that our um, desktop users are using. So same situation if you're a user of a physical device, you also go here. So you can see we're all the time trying to standardize. Um, Brian mentioned that they have a standard image that we have qualified. Um, well, we ask them to go to the same place to get software to load onto that qualified image, even though it's on a virtual desktop. Um, the third point here in terms of support, we've implemented a, a community concept. Now, what we've done here is we've put users into logical groupings. Um, it might be by team, by project team, by org, um, whatever works. Um, but each community has a community lead, and that's really similar to the power user, super user type model. They have an additional layer of training. Um, they're a lot more aware of how to find the right KBAs, how to find the right information to support virtual desktop users. But additionally, they have a virtual desktop admin portal. So as the community lead, they have the rights to go to this portal and check any member of that community, um, check the health of the virtual instance, they can restart it, they can also rebuild, so they have additional functionality. So two portals, one is for the user and one is for the community lead. The community lead can only carry out those functions on members of his community, but he may also be a community lead for other communities, you know, he can have many communities that he's responsible for. We find this works really well. We have a group of users um, that Brian mentioned earlier, they're application support people. There's actually three community leads, they're a large bunch of people. Um, they have taken away a lot of the support. They will literally, they buffer everything. We don't see any tickets from those users, those users do not ring our service desk. So there's an automatic reduction in terms of ticketing and in terms of, terms of volume to our service desk. Um, which is you know, a good outcome for us. Um, another support route really, you know, they're contract users. We have a use your own device model. We don't say bring, we say use. Um, we ask those folks if they have a problem with their hardware to go to the company they work for and get the issue resolved that way. Now, that doesn't account for the fact that there may be some kind of major issue in the environment. Um, touch wood. But in those scenarios, we have really good health monitoring, which John will talk about, where we will know there's an issue probably before, and usually before the user knows that there is an issue. So you can see here that I suppose some key fundamentals to take away from this is that be very clear in the support model for the virtual desktop users and make a portal or portals available to them, whether it's to the user individually to do their own troubleshooting and resolve their own issues or to a community lead type user, power user, um, but really make it possible for them and empower them to do whatever they need to do to resolve their issues. It will save you a lot of heartache in the long run and it will also remove the needs for service desk tickets and for um, hardware break fix. Um, and with that, you know, given that we've talked a lot about how we've optimized for self-service, John is gonna take you some, um, through some of the other work we've done there also. I'll hold yeah. on to this. Thank you. <clears throat> I'm John Bolton. 
I'm a member of the uh, virtual desktop team and one of the technical leads. Uh, the slide here talks about the abstraction, la abstraction layer of some of the, the features that we implemented using the um, Amazon APIs. So uh, how we've developed the automated capabilities. So self-service provisioning. We've empowered the hiring manager. It's a slightly different model to what Hassan had discussed, but we've empowered the um, hiring manager to initiate provisioning on demand. So as the onboard an individual, we've integrated into the on, uh, IT onboarding process, and that triggers um, a mechanism whereby the user uh, who's being onboarded uh, will be allowed to go to the portal, the user portal, and, and a, a um, virtual desktop will be available for them to create. So it's, the user actually initiates the creation of their own instance. And within two hours of that, uh, the user initiating that, they'll have access to our business systems. We do <coughs> life cycle management. We have a full life cycle management uh, features that we've built in. And we avoid any warehousing. We don't do any warehousing. It's truly on demand. Because we can build them so quickly uh, we don't have to do have virtual warehouses. If you're in a physical fleet, you typically have uh, a storeroom full of uh, laptops or desktops waiting to be used. We don't do that in the virtual world. Speed of positioning. Um, again, as I said, they can have access to our systems within a couple of hours, as opposed to days or even weeks in some cases when you go into a physical end, uh, asset. Um, as part of the life cycle management also, we have uh, I think Brian mentioned a little bit about scavenging, whereby we, we monitor the fleet, uh, consistently, constantly monitor the fleet, and we look at uh, if users are off-boarded, um, or if there's a 30-day idle time on the, on the device, we park it. Essentially, we turn it to an always-on to auto-stop, which is an hourly rate, and that reduces our cost. So we, we do this automatic. This is all automatic uh, on a monthly basis. We have a CMDB, which is automatically updated with the lifecycle state of the, of the asset. So as it moves through its life, we update the CMDB within minutes of the state changing. The CMDB is updated to reflect the current status. Key management. Um, we have uh, encryption keys that we use, and we build out those in a, in a, 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 a defined block. And we manage those keys in such a way that we can reuse those keys within that block. So we have a very um, highly optimized key management mechanism where we can um, reuse encryption keys. If you imagine as we, as we scavenged instances, those keys are uh, put back into the pool. We reuse those keys so we can um, reduce our, um, get more effective use. Uh, health monitoring, now health monitoring, we put that in place uh, to monitor the health of the whole fleet, and we, we monitor this uh, daily, um, and we look at the fleet of how, how the actual fleet is, uh, is performing. If we have issues with, with any instance, we, we have the ability to automatically um, restart the instance. Uh, we also monitor various network features. Uh, we monitor the AD directory, um, we monitor the various uh, network ports. We, we continually, <coughs> we often know before 
anybody else that the things are going on, we have these alerts that we have built in to automatically alert us of any issues that are going on within the fleet. And finally, um, function access control. So with all this, we talked, this is really aligned to the community concept that Yvonne spoke to, whereby we, we have uh, access controls to allow us to manage the, the communities of the, the different fleets, the whole fleet, uh, whereby we uh, control access or what kind of features that the individual community leads can do. For example, a community lead uh, can rebuild, um, restart, uh, and it could also re uh, add to the, the community. Yeah, with certain, uh, the, we, we can control access to that kind of functionality. So rather than um, a request coming back to us or you know, support per person to add to the fleet, to the community fleet, we can give the ability through access controls for the community lead to add to that, that uh, their own communities. And that's really um, the, uh, the things that we've implemented in a very high level. So thank you. Questions, I guess? No? Yep. yep. Yeah. When you, right, so typically, uh, I'll take this, yeah. Uh, typically, it was a laptop, okay? Um, and we offer our, a virtual laptop to them now, as opposed to a physical laptop. Are you talking about the specs, you mean? Oh, okay. So the similar specs, um, we, we use a, a standard model. In Hassan's example, he had a whole host of different uh, uh, bundles that they have. We, we don't do that. We just say, everybody's going to get a standard bundle. Now, with this new feature to give us the ability to upgrade one, which is a great feature up to now, up until this feature, we, we had to destroy, rip down, tear down the instance and rebuild it with a new one, with, it, with a higher level or whatever. Uh, with this new feature, we can do it on the fly, which is great. Um, but we, we provision, by default, a standard a bundle to the to the users. Okay. So yeah, so we have seen um, uh, you know um, customers do all sorts of different things because right now uh, we have Windows client, we have Mac uh, client, we have Thin client, Zero client, Chromebooks, uh, Chrome OS, Android, and iPad. So all of these devices that I mentioned, uh, whichever suits your organization, um, you know, as the as the best device. Um, is pretty much what um, you should uh, think about. Uh, but as far as our customers are concerned, um, it, it ranges all uh, you know, across that uh, spectrum. Uh, we do see um, a lot of traction on the thin client side. Uh, we do see that um, Chromebook is a very cost-effective um, um, way of uh, accessing workspaces. And the main thing is that because we can use web access clients, so anything that can run a browser, can gain access to workspaces. Yeah, from, from a Pfizer point of view, we don't care. <laughs> you know, we're, we're giving the contractors, we say, whatever device you want to use, use it. And that's it. Because we're giving you our desktop. And that's the beauty of it. We don't have to worry about that. 
No, it's not our cost. It's the vendor's cost, not so, our cost. Uh, it, it's also From a physical asset, I mean. That's what I'm saying, the physical laptop. Right, but then... Not uh, for us, though, not for Pfizer. We don't give them a laptop anymore. They bring their own. They bring, no, own. bring your own device. Right. Correct. Exactly. And that's the beauty of it. Yeah. That's, a, that's an amazing cost saving. So recently we also launched Samsung uh, DeX with Samsung Galaxy 8. So if you have a Samsung Galaxy 8 phone, you can access workspaces. Yep. So it's really bring your own device that you can use, uh, you can tell your users, that, hey, bring your own personal device, whatever you have. Whatever so you're comfortable using. Out. Yep. And that, that, that is a, that's the beauty of this, this solution. It really is. Yep. I'll just go. No, we did it ourselves. Yes. We had the skills. We had the skills, yeah. We, we had the skills, but I think we were sort of on the bleeding edge about what we're asking Amazon to do. Yeah. So uh, we were really pushing them to go down a certain path. Um, and as they built out the service, like, you know, partnering with Amazon, we were able to sort of take advantage of certain things. and agree the roadmap with them about what's really important to have in play yeah. to move to large scale because the thing about it is it's it's easy to turn this up like for you know four or five thousand people turn it up for forty thousand people is a different scenario you have to have your processes in place you know it needs to be robust and it needs to be as simple as possible so and we didn't want to have a fleet of people having to worry about this either. So right. the more you put into automation, the less the resource load is going to be and the cost model is just going to be more and more effective. Plus, too, it makes it a lot easier to train people because they don't have to worry about anything. They just, it's simple to them. It's, all the complexity is hidden away from them. Right. Yeah, and, and, and another, another point, I think, from a security point of view. When we started with Amazon, they didn't have encryption. We pushed them to the open. It's one of our it's one of our demands, as it were, for us to move to this solution. We had to have it. Yeah. What did you use for application? We still use our standard, standard process. Standard process. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's another thing. One of the principles of what when we when we started on this journey was uh, we didn't want to change anything. That's from the, from a support point of view. So the support model that's being used for virtual desktop is the same for application support. We use the same tools at I think it's important to add to that as well, though, that you know, what John has said there, we didn't want to change models as such. We haven't. You know, our IT onboarding model is the same. Yes. One thing has changed. Our support processes are still the same. Only these bunch of users actually have additional routes to go now that other users of physical devices do not have. Um, so. A lot of what we do has not changed. Virtual desktop has slotted into it in various different mechanisms, yeah. like application deployment. It's, it's become part of the, the, the portfolio of services that we offer. It, it's embedded as a, a total service within the environment. Right. How many users are you running? Currently, at the moment, about 2,500. Uh, we'll be running 30,000 by probably the end of next year, at uh, the end of 2018. So we're rolling it out for a certain population set in the next 12 months. Uh, what we were really, um, we just completed a pilot. We, 
there's a couple of things that we were doing. We were working in partnership with Amazon to solve some issues that we had around certain development areas. Um, we were also testing too the business use cases, what profiles of people were going to get, what type of service, and how do we support that, and figuring out what, what services do we want to stand up. And then in parallel to that, we knew to get somebody to move from a physical machine to a virtual machine, like, it's okay for us techie guys, like, you know, we, it's easy for us to do that, but if you're talking about somebody in a research and development lab, and their focus is on research and development, and, you know, engineering products, you, you wanted to make the process to get them from a physical machine to a virtual machine as easy as possible. So that's what we've been doing, is putting that process and automation in place to take them through that step by step by step in the portal, and they can see what going on and what their next step is and what they have to do. And when you have that in play, then you can scale and you can run and you can move very, very quickly. But if you don't do that, you're going to end up like, you know, having to manage, like, particularly if you go above 10,000 users, you're, you're going to start to struggle, like, you know. You also, as you migrate them, we, you, you have to put them on rails within a time frame. If you don't, they won't migrate. I think we've all been there. Yeah, an additional thing, I guess, is you know, educating the users on uh, clean data usage. The idea, I mean, my vision would be is that the virtual desktop is just an engine. The data lives in the cloud. So that we can rip down that engine, put a new engine in, and, it's, and they've got the data already. That's the target. Like just as an example, we moved from Windows 8 to Windows 10 for that user group community in India. And we basically moved them overnight, basically, from yeah, Windows 8 to days. Windows 10. Three days. Three days. And that was only because of capacity being able to run, turn them through. Um, our internal users, um, we're working with them at the moment in certain business use cases, but we're using it um, well, in, test in, test on, on test systems. We're using it in production in certain areas. Um, if a user wants to use a virtual machine, we have a lot of people that use Macs, particularly in research and development, um, and they are using it, and Salesforce is going to be using it as well. So it's not just going to contract our user communities, it's going to be scaled out beyond that into Salesforce and also into specific user groups. Um, really what we wanted to do was to make sure that we ironed out all of the process issues first before we start to roll out then to full-time users in Pfizer, full-time employees. But um, there's certain user groups that suits more than others. As I said, like you couldn't really roll it into a manufacturing um, uh, plant because, you know, for certain different reasons. But, Anybody who's working in a carpeted area and who has access to the internet, off you go. Yep. No, actually, we're getting actually more push to actually, we're, we're actually getting more demand than what we can cope with. We're actually pushing back. Yeah. Because we wanted to make sure that we had all our processes and everything lined up to operate at scale. So we're, we actually, we're, we're push, we were pushing people away to say, no, we don't have that use case sorted out yet. We will come back to you. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, in certain circumstances, like um, a lot, some people have come up and have given up their laptop, you know, and they just use their own device and they use a, a virtual machine or like you use a Chromebook or whatever, you know. And, you know, obviously, we're, we're trying to get away from being shackled to a particular hardware device because, you know, in five years' time, it's going to look a lot different now then what, you know, it's going to be a lot different in terms of all of the devices that are out there. Like the iPhone X is a good example. Like, that's the same price as a, like, as a, as a PC now, yeah. you know? So, you know, like, you know, we have, you know, 80,000 iOS devices, like in Pfizer. I, I think as well, though, to, to add to your point, um, when uh, graduates come in on our graduate program, mm -hmm. uh, some of them have been told bring in their own device and they go, okay. Yeah, it's uh, it really is, it is a generational yeah. thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You're correct. They see it as separate. Yeah. They want something <clears throat> to be given to them. Yeah, one of the things you know, one of the things that we've done is um, there are certain <clears throat> yeah, having your own device, right? Some people may think it's well, it's my device. I don't want any of my any company data on it. Well, we actually don't allow that. We stop data exploitation from the instance to the physical device. So you're not allowed to move data between the instance and your physical entity, your physical asset. To move, to move um, you know, people who run typical Windows devices you know, in a carpeted area in an office environment, you need to make sure that you have your processes lined up, you know, that you're clear about where you should be storing data. You can't have data hanging all over the place. If, and you also need to be clear on your policies around what devices you're going to put into the environment. You know, because then in certain um, areas, like for legality you know, and geography stuff, you're going to get into issues with HR and with legal around, you know, payments. So you're going to have to agree with HR around, you know, we're going to provide, as an example, a Chromebook for this business user community, and it's paid for by the business. And you get a Chromebook with a VM on it, as an example. Off you go. But, but there is a cultural but, aspect. But that's a business. Yeah, that's a business choice that you have. Yeah. yeah. But uh, and that's not going to be the same for every, you know, um, company. So you have to figure that out, what boundary you want to push yourself, you know. But what we wanted to do, our approach was fundamentally up front, was get people to understand what we're trying to do, build up the momentum, get, you know, the, the, get it working at scale, and then by doing that then, that will accelerate then the full-time employee population to move to it, you know, for, for the areas that make sense in the business areas. So I, th I think there's a couple of aspects yeah. to that question, actually. Um, I suppose the, the primary thing for us right now is that it's carpeted users. So in a manufacturing environment, you talked about scanners, you know, things like that. 
um, we don't we haven't gone forward with that business use case. It doesn't make sense to us because yet there's a lot of users in that type of environment and manufacturing need to physically connect to something. It, it's not a use case we've gone after right now. But do you want to talk about maybe the, the kind of yes, so, what, what, print things like that? Yeah. yeah. Because uh, the, the instance is on our network, any printer on our network, they can print to. Right? It's, they just cannot print to uh, any physical device connected any device connected to the physical device they're using to access our system. However, in saying that, we've done that deliberately for security reasons. So the, fe the features are there to allow us to do it. So we're, we're working through understanding what the best approach is of allowing maybe registering a user, registering a device for them to print to at home, for example. So we're working through those issues, uh, but right now we don't allow it. We just say you're not allowed to print locally. Now, we, we, we do understand that there will come instances where it will be a requirement for them to do it um, at home or whatever. And then we're, we're still working through those issues and understanding what the best approach is. It works. You know, it, it works. Audio, video, no. Video doesn't work on the video doesn't work on virtual desktop. And that's, it's an Amazon thing that they're working through. It's mainly just throughput and being able to get good quality video because you're going into cloud, coming back into the physical device and so on. The audio has a similar issue, but there are techniques we can use called offloading, whereby we can essentially use Amazon's backbone to send the, the audio across rather than hauling it back to Pfizer and then back out to Amazon and back to, back to the physical device. So we're working through those kind of things, and it's more of an pro internal process that we have to go through. To ensure that we can whitelist that kind of stuff. Yeah. So uh, today, Workspaces has uh, comes with two volume drives. Um, you know, the C drive and the D drive. Uh, and how we segment is that uh, all the applications, your OS image, uh, stays in your root volume, which is the C drive, and all the user files, the user directories, and all of that stuff is in the D drive. Um, what a rebuild does, so every 12 hours, we take a snapshot of the D drive. Uh, so all the user data gets snapshotted every 12 hours. Uh, and when you execute a rebuild, uh, what that does is that it uh, you know, throws away your C, uh, it takes the snapshot from your, um, you know, the latest snapshot from your D drive, uh, puts it in a, basically starts a new workspace and copies that data over uh, in the D drive. So you have a clean image from the C, uh, but your user data is not lost. So that's what a full rebuild process is. But your applications are not there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because that's, there's a certain benefit for that, because uh, if your application got corrupted or you know, you, uh, you know, messed up with your OS image, you don't want that to be copied to the new um, machine. Virtual, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm curious if you can speak a little bit more about how you kind of redirect that so the help desk recovery is getting it at first call 
So we've tagged the virtual desktops in our CMDB. So when the service desk gets a call, they know straight away that it is, by this tag, it's a virtual desktop. Um, Correct. It's a flag. It's yeah. a flag that we have. Um, yeah. they, at that point, they can choose to say, have you followed? Well, we recommend that the service desk say, have you followed X support processes? Like, have you gone to the virtual desktop portal? Have you checked out the on-demand website to see, does this KBA suit you, et cetera, et cetera? So they push back. Um, I do think we will get to a point where we will say, it's a pushback and there's no more assistance. At, the, at this point, we're not there yet. We still have a certain amount of tickets going through. We have um, a, you know, a very um, comprehensive KBA that our service desk use. They're quite proficient, actually, in mm -hmm. terms of resolving the issues, but we don't want them to. We don't want them to have to do that. So it's about education for the user and for the service desk, and that's all in the operational readiness, making sure that they're ready to actually take those calls or not take those calls. Yeah, I mean, using the, the community concept idea really, really buffers working. a lot yeah. of it from the help desk. It really does. What data? HIPAA. HIPAA, yeah. So uh, we are HIPAA compliant. Um, um, I don't know uh, about uh, how well, far we, we use our own image. It's a qualified image anyway. So um, the data is not on the desktop, the, the, so the yeah. data will still live within the systems where it is meant to live. Yep. So it shouldn't really be a factor. Yeah. Right. However, workspaces is uh, HIPAA compliant, so you can uh, use that uh, with HIPAA data. Yeah, we, we actually had a, um, an environment for um, supporting our third-party contractors, and actually um, one of the issues we had was that um, we couldn't upgrade it from, it was, I think, Windows 7 or something like that. XP? And, yeah, no, it was XP, was it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it was XP. XP. And uh, we, we said, like, it was going to cost, I won't go into the details, but an enormous amount of money to upgrade this. But we, we couldn't upgrade it. It, it couldn't be upgraded. Then, so we, we were going to have to rebuild it. Um, and, and actually, how we started off on the whole workspaces piece was that we were rolling out Windows 10 to, you know, across all of Pfizer. And we did, and John was heavily involved in this, we actually did all of the application testing actually on uh, the workspaces environment. So that was the start of it, actually. When we did that, then we actually said, well, why don't we start rolling this out? Where does it make sense to start rolling this out? So that was actually the start of the conversation. Yeah, you know? right. And, and one of the business use cases that we do today, um, which is actually was telling the, the Amazon guys about, was we moved to Workday um, um, there about five months ago. And when we were moving to Workday, you can imagine like the um, sensitivity around personal data, you know, for 100,000 people, um, and all the testing that you have to do to be, you know, for Workday in the cloud. So what we did was we had the workspaces environment and we dumped all the data in there and we did all the application testing uh, for Workday in the workspaces environment because it was completely locked down and only those set group of people could get access to it. And it was completely shut off from everybody else. Yeah, we used the directory mechanism, AD directory, to lock it down to a specific group. Similar to, I don't know if you went to the previous uh, session over across the way here. So we use that mechanism. It's it's even surprising us how many different business use cases we're getting. They're coming to us. They're coming to us. A lot. A lot. <laughs> you know. 
I mean, it's not a panacea for everything. Like, there's always going to be some element of physical machines in your environment, but you can take a lot out. Yeah. You know, a lot. No, we use our standard process, the SCCM. Um, no, no, we have um, actually. Uh, acquisitions and divestitures. Yeah. Uh, we have the contractor use case. We have also um, DR. Uh, DR. DR. Yeah. Uh, we also have um, application support use case and the lockdown security piece for doing testing. Um, we're also running it in certain areas where um, we're running um, uh, bots. Um, to do financial uh, scanning and analysis for um, some of our financial teams. Uh, that's another use case that we're still standing up. Um, the, the one actually that has a lot of promise really for us is the whole Salesforce one because mm -hmm. um, being able to go to a single device on the iPad um, is key because you're, you're doing away with you know, people that are carrying around two pieces of equipment and they can run basically everything that they need on iPad Pro uh, one of the capabilities that we're working on Amazon with is that you're going to be able to use a mouse actually with the iPad Pro to actually control your desktop rather than just having the hand gestures. So, How long did it take you to develop your processes before you It's, pro it's probably 12 to 18 months, but like any other new service, you start at a certain point and you evolve. And a lot of the evolution is based on you know, the feedback, it's based on the various requirements that come up as you ramp up and up and up. And what we have right now, given the ramp up that we planned for 2018, it'll probably look slightly different again at the end of 2018. So we started at a certain point, we evolve it regularly. We're doing quite a lot of work to get us to that deployment, that major deployment timeframe in Q1. Um, but you do need to start with certain processes in place like Service Desk, um, you know, having that knowledge of what to do and what not to do, having um, KBAs available to users and being very clear in communicating this is what the service is and this is how it's supported. You could probably do it faster now because we were in development with yeah. Amazon for quite a bit of time yeah. to get yeah. things in play. Now, these guys have done a fantastic job of listening to us and working with us to develop the capabilities. And it's only really now, like this month basically, that we feel we have all the things that we need to go full ramp into full-blown production into large-scale 40,000 machines. But that was a very conscious decision on our behalf. The timing needs to be right, right, and we're right. getting there. That was a very yeah. conscious decision on our behalf. We've done probably about 25 plus POCs to get that feedback to understand exactly what, what we need to do. So but, uh, you probably could do it. Years, I guess, right? you depending on the size of your organization, you, you probably could do it in six months. The reason we did so many POCs, just to add to John's point as well, is um, location. Yep. We need to know somebody in Australia can connect to the Singapore pop or you know, somebody in China can work. Or There's a lot of those types of scenarios that we need to work through ourselves. Yeah. All right. Without further ado, let's go grab drinks. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Susanna. Thanks.